Hey, welcome everyone to another edition of Orlando Magic Pod Squad. We got a good one. Former Magic player Pat Garrity joins the broadcast, and you certainly don't want to miss that. Magic fans, the Florida Department of Transportation reminds you that fans don't let fans drive drunk. If you've been drinking, don't get behind the wheel. Instead, find a sober driver or catch a ride service. Remember, drive sober or get pulled over. Have a great night and drive safe. Lots to cover with former Magic player Pat Garrity. Ten years in the NBA, nine of them. Right here in City Beautiful, he was a part of that Art and Hustle team. We'll get his thoughts on that year, what that looked like, uh, as it was his first year in Orlando, playing alongside Tracy McGrady in the prime of his career. What does he remember about those years? And is there an opportunity for Pat Garrity, former member of the front office with the Detroit Pistons, to possibly return to a front office here in the NBA? And his thoughts as an analyst on this Orlando Magic team and how good they can be, especially Paolo Carroll. Lots to get into with Pat Garrity on this edition of Magic Pod Squad. This is Fonz Wagner of the Orlando Magic. This is Cole Anthony. This is Jalen Suggs. This is Paolo Carroll of the Orlando Magic. And you're listening to the Pod Squad. Hey, welcome everyone to the latest installment of Orlando Magic Pod Squad. Dante Marcatelli, George Galante, Jake Chapman, and we're joined by Pat Garrity, 10-year NBA veteran, nine of them right here with the Orlando Magic. Worked for four years in the front office with the Detroit Pistons, television analyst, a front office insider on the stadium, but probably most noted for his time carrying the pregame show here in Orlando uh, on Valley <laughs> Sports Florida. Right, Pat? Uh, you, you, what was it going to take for us to get you back as an analyst here in Central you know, Florida? My wife and I talk about that all the time because after I retired, I went to business school. I had big ideas of like making my making something out of myself. And I say, why didn't I just stay in Orlando and continue to play golf at Bay Hill where we lived? It's just done pre and post kid shows with Dante. Yes, why not? What? And where'd you land? And where'd you land? Can we circle back on that? Because Bay Hill's still open, right? You could still come back and golf. And Dante's still here. And so am I. <laughs> Although I have some competition now from Q Rich. I don't think he's given up that seat, and he has a lot to say, as we all know. <laughs> yes, it does. You're familiar with you're familiar with him as well. So when so for, as you look at what you've done, right? You went back, you got your degree, you moved on, you've had success wherever you've gone. Is it is it unambitious that George and I are still here, or is it amazing that we or is it amazing that we've been able to hang on this long? I'm, no, you I'm, you've, you've been You've been doing something right. You've survived. The way I would look at it is you've survived the rebuilds, and now you're coming out on the other side. Um, no, I think that that's like one of the more impressive things about Orlando is. And again, I was we were talking about this uh, just getting ready for the trip to come up there. Is just how many people are are still there from yeah. when I was there, um, which I think it is a testament a lot to you know kind of the ownership and and how Mister DeVos always like treated people and. Um, I, I think it's a, a special thing, especially like in sports where you do see kind of a lot of turnover in the things that you guys do. Well, that's a very good point. That way, because Dante and I usually see it as laziness. So I'm <laughs> glad that you we can bring you on to, right. to, to make us feel a little bit better about ourselves. So Pat, catch everybody up with what you're doing now. We know you're all over. I mean, every time I turn on the TV, it's you and Shams breaking down, breaking down trades and moves and Critique. I love it. I think I, he's I, on I, NBA radio. He's I know it's rating spikes everywhere when Pat. <laughs> there. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was after a, a few different things um, was with the Pistons started in Detroit with, with Stan 
um, and was there for six years, four four with him, and then two kind of in a transition period before um, before Troy Weaver came in. Um, and then after that, you know, really didn't put too much effort to try to get back into a front office job. At that time, my son was right in the middle of high school, and um, I, I wanted to enjoy like being around him in his sports career. And I, I I liked some of the media stuff that I had done, you know, ten years ago. That was really my only exposure to it. And um, you know, I, I know Shams over the years, um, that didn't, re- was never really close to him, but he called me up and he said, Hey, we're doing this show. You, would you like to come on and, and, you know, try it? We have an opening. We're looking for like an analyst. And, uh, that was on inside the association which was carried all, on the, all the Bally sports channels up until, um, kind of the beginning of this year when there was some restructuring. So, uh, I did that for a few seasons. I still do specials with them on, on stadium. Um, which are streamed on Twitter and get uh, and a lot of it because of Shams get a, incredible engagement of, of people watching these trade deadline specials and free agency previews and draft uh, things like that. So that's been a lot of fun. But but now that uh, we're empty nesters and our son is off to college, um, I'm kind of giving it one. I don't know if it's we'd say one last, but one kind of final good effort to to hook up back up with the team um, and, and get back to work. Nice. I'll be forty eight. I'll be forty eight this summer, so I, I don't think I'm quite yet ready to retire. I tell people I'm semi retired, so that leaves the door open. <laughs> that's what I tell people too. But that's what I really ask here. It's amazing. They basically come in semi retired. Well, so how, so how has the game changed, Pat? Because you got uh, obviously it's. I mean, it, it seems to change yearly. But when you when you first went this route with the Detroit Pistons to now, right? I mean, these the, the staffs are enormous. I can remember when you were here in Orlando, right? What was that front office? Gabe, right? Gabe, 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 Gabe Forsick, Otis at the end there. Yeah. Yeah. Now we've got, we've got at least 30 people in our analytics team, right? It's, it's amazing how this, how this whole front office system has morphed. It, it has. Um, and you know, it, it, even in the 10 years from when I started with Stan, so we joined in 2014, he put together at the time a gi- like what was considered a giant staff. Um, and that was like four pro scouts, four college scouts, three assistant GMs, <laughs> um, like two analytics guys. That's like an yeah. average staff now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so number one, you know, and I think that, I think that what you see, and you probably you don't see a lot of this actually being reported. One of the challenges is actually managing all of those people well, right? Because the, yeah. if you think about what a GM is really supposed to be good at, it is supposed to be identifying talent, um, having some kind of sort of like strategic plan to you know, what, depending on where you're at in your team's life cycle. Um, and then, like really good negotiate, good relationships with agents and other teams to kind of get done what you need to get done. Um, those are really hard skills to have. And then layer on top of that, being able to manage a bunch of scouts, a bunch of people at different points in their career, uh, analytics people who might have worked uh, kind of in the corporate world outside of basketball that aren't used to that culture. It's a really difficult job. So I think the guys that have done it well are are unique. And as far as the analytics go, you, you you sort of presided over or at least been able to observe the development of that world and obviously the amount of resources pumped into it. But then I think the way that we understand it and now all of a sudden there's like backlash and I, I, I always hear people, you know, sort of make it the boogeyman and I don't think they have any idea what they're talking about. Where where do you come down on all of that? How 
how is it best applied? Is it just a tool? When you do get back in, how are you going to use it? Yeah, no, I, it's a it's a good question. I mean, the way I always uh, like break it down is there's there's a really like two ways that you could use it. One is like descriptive, and one is predictive, right? And I think that there's no question that using kind of data to understand what happened is mm-hmm. like invaluable, and, and you have to do that just because you just don't have. There's so much going on in the game that it's just hard to understand. So even the people that bash, you know, analytics are like using it to kind of confirm, (laughs) confirm, you know, the record or what they thought happened. Right. Um, So that's number one. And and like, especially like on the coaching side, like there's no coaching staff in the NBA that's not using data to determine their game plan, you know, whether or not they want to admit it, like how they cover pick and roll, like how the type of players and teams that they're defending that's going into all of their decision-making and every single coaching staff has like a coaching analytics analyst on their, on their staff. Um, I think the difficult thing and like the more um, disparity among teams, how you use it is, is kind of from a front office perspective. Like when you're talking about the extent that it plays into the draft or into free agency and things like that, because that's predicting the future. And, you know, it's easy to use like big data sets when you can make, you know, a million decisions and you're hoping to have a hit rate of, you know, 55 or 60%. Um, right. A lot of times in the NBA, a 55 or 60% hit rate, like you get four of 10 draft years wrong, like your first four wrong, like you could still be on track, but you're out of a job. That's, that's, I think, where it's a little more difficult, but, you know, it just seems teams obviously put money into it and they have kind of analytic models to predict player success. Um at the end of the day, though, it's the GMs. The, the GM is not going to go in front of a press conference and defend his draft pick because he said, look, we had these 10 guys from MIT and women from MIT that built this awesome model. I was doing what the model said. Like, well, how could you blame it on me? Take it on on MIT if you don't like it. Yeah, that's right. Talk to him. How is it changed with the agents? You know, as far as agents, right? Because it seems like there, there, there's, there's so many of them now. It seems, and you know, I, I'm not saying it's, it's for better or worse, but it, it seems to have changed. That relationship piece with agents is huge too for front office folks. Yes, uh, I think, um, I think a lot of that has to do with the consolidation in the in the agency world. And so maybe if you look at ten or twenty years ago, there were many more smaller agents. Uh, spread out they were still the power agents like david sure Falk and mark right. barbstein you know goes but now with how powerful agencies like caa and clutch and um obviously like you know wasserman and excel like those are those are those are the big ones they cover so many guys they they do just because they have so many guys they have a great deal of power and so with your team you can't look at it as a, you know, this is a one-time negotiation that we're going to, you know, we're going to try to win or you, you have to think about, the, you know, you know, the future and the other good point. applications yep. of, of kind of keeping the relationship going that way. I, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the analytics pad and, and my analytics say that if you were playing in today's game, <laughs> yes, I, I mean, how rich would you be, first of all? Because I, I mean, we're all everybody's looking for a six nine six ten guy that can bomb threes. You were ahead of your time. Forty percent, forty percent three point shooter. Yeah. Do you think maybe I was born a little too early? Well, no, number one, I would have been a center. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But you wouldn't have to go down on the block, and you'd be go right where you were. 
Exactly. Yeah, we could have found, but you know, and that's what I said. If you just pair me with Bo Outlaw, Bo out, Bo could play defense, protect the rim. Yes. Right? Yes. Exactly. No, I think there was, though. Even you know the shooting aspect, obviously, but you know, and you would have the way that guys work on their game now is is different too. But just the level of skill of even even stretch, you know, one dimensional type four men or five men right now is like way beyond. Um, and you watch how these got like everyone can handle, everyone can pass. Um, so this, the skill level to me is incredible. I, I think I always thought of myself as a pretty skilled player, but then I watch like I said, I'm like, God, I might, I might, I might have had a hard time. <laughs> well, you know, morphed, you know, morphed like they do. I yeah. mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Now we're watching a seven, four guy. He might be seven, six and the things that he can do. Right. Do you, do you sit back sometimes and just marvel at, at that and how much it's changed and some of the, yeah, we got to. Right, with a guy like Wembenyama and these guys that what they can do, bowl, bowl, Kevin Durant, I mean, it's remarkable. I do, and I think there's something to the, all of the criticism right now that's going on in the NBA about so much offense and how boring the game is to watch. Because I, I talk to people who, and it's not an uncommon thing to say, I'd rather just watch college basketball. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, right. the, And I think a lot of it has to do with just how skilled everyone is and how easy it looks because it looks so easy and everything looks the same. It just, it looks like there's not much going on. Um, and if you did, but and you brought up Kevin Durant, if you watch how Kevin Durant scores, like he takes incredibly difficult shots. Yes. Yes. You know, contested shots with people game planning to stop him. And it doesn't look like he's putting in any effort at all. <laughs> Well, well, let me ask you, let me ask you, that's a very good point, but you played with Tracy McGrady in the prime of his career, right? And we talked to him a couple of months ago and, you know, Tracy, well, you know, you're not surprised. Tracy would tell you he'll average 45 in today's game, but, but you, but you had a front row seat to prime Tracy McGrady in this day and age defensively where you can't touch these guys, right? That he's able to get wherever he wants on the floor. You can't impede anybody offensively. What, what, what would he look like today? And, and no, obviously McGr- right? McG- McGrady would be, I mean, McGrady would be a top five player, the top 10 player. No, there's no question in my mind about that today. And I think that the thing that people don't, and, and his game completely translated to today. And I don't think the the thing that people realize, unless they really watched it back in the day, is just how dangerous at all areas of the floor he was. Like one of the best parts of his game was kind of that mid post area where he could, where he could ISO. And he was also one of the best passers that I've ever played with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in an era where you do have, where he would have had a lot more spacing, we'd have been surrounded by four shooters. He, he would have been incredibly, incredibly difficult to, to you, you couldn't stop him. I mean, he would have averaged 30 points. Ben, as far as the scoring goes, I mean, cause it's a pretty hot topic right now. Is it, do you think it's in a good place? Cause first off, anybody who tells you I prefer college basketball over pro, but they don't watch college basketball either. That's, that's just what it does. <laughs> Yeah, one of those things people say at the bar. Um, is it? But is it in an okay place? Do we need? Did we kind of overcorrect and now we need to bring it back? I, I'm not saying we need you know 95 to 93 every night, but but is it? Has it gone a little too far? Do you think? Because I'm saying I, I can almost suggest that we're cha- that we alter the dimensions of the court and we're getting rid of the the corner threes. And I'm like, okay, let's right. let's step the brakes a little bit. Yeah, like who doesn't like scoring? I mean, I, I think that I. Th- that's the thing that always like baffles me. Who doesn't like a game where the thing that is rewarded is skill? 
Like that's, that's yeah, yeah, right. the game is moved. And you know, I whether or not you know you could allow a little bit more physicality and take take some of the touch fouls out. I think that you probably could. Like not to the extent that college does. College to me is like it's like a bloodbath. Like you guys, when you watch like a guy go through the lane, um, it's not fun to watch at all. You know, I do think that the one thing, and this is less related, I think, kind of to the physicality and scoring, but then more to kind of the, I think the criticism a lot of times in the spotlight that you see on referees. I think that the NBA has made such an effort to, to, you know, minimize error, error and, and provide transparency to the fans and, you know, with the replay and all this kind of stuff. I think that actually taking a step back and, and going more toward on the path of like, look, these are humans, they're fallible, like in the end it all washes out. Yeah. Um, would be a much it, it would make for a much better product. Like we don't need to know the names of these officials. They don't they're not part of the show, right? Um that's a great point. I, it depends, it depends I, on who you ask. It depends on who you ask. Yeah, it, it depends on who you ask. And I and I think what I think what just happened for if you're a younger official, like there's no reason why you wouldn't do anything other than buy the book. And that means the way that you interact with players and coaches and you know, I, I and maybe this is kind of like a little bit of like the nostalgia come out, but I kind of like look back at the day when you had Steve Giavi or Jess Kersey or some of these guys, and you knew that like if you said something to them or they didn't like your coach, they were going to like call it a certain way. And that was just part of the game. That's part of the game. Joey Crawford, right? You couldn't combat Joey, Joey Crawford. I mean, like, think about the, 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 uh, the other night against Brooklyn. We had a, a situation where there's three of three and a half minutes to go in the game. We're up. We were up by 30 or whatever. The game was well in hand. And we had a five, six minute delay for uh, a challenge or something. We had a challenge. And, and it's just, it's left. just, and you're just like, oh my God, like, let's, we, there has to be put some common sense back into it too when it comes to the officiating as well. It's like, listen, like he, one of those guys could have went and talked to Kevin Ollie and been like, listen, Kevin, like we, we have reservations at nine 45. Like it's time to get out. Yeah, yeah. So this one's up, you know, through the door. George, speaking of the size of staffs though, there's a guy behind the bench with a clipboard whose entire job is challenges. That's yeah, he's, that's true. he's living and dying with that. And you know what's sad is I don't even know if he got it right. I don't even know. I don't really I think he missed the challenge. I think he missed it. What would you tell Pat? What would you tell magic? fans about this team as you kind of put on your your analyst hat and and i know magic fans are are excited there's a buzz in town they, they haven't been this many games above 500 in february since 2012 been a long time coming a lot of excitement here in town what what can this team do what do you like about yeah this I, I think that one of the really impressive things about this team is is and it has to do with how the team is built but how they're actually doing it which is on the defensive end i, I you know i think i looked and they were you know, on basketball reference, at least top five defensively, like at this point of the season with this young of a team, that is incredibly impressive. I I think one of the difficult things, and you're seeing this a little bit with Minnesota, although with Minnesota, a lot of it has to do with Rudy Gobert is that's the route that they've gone as well. They're number one in the West. Um, They're the number one defensive team. And the question is going to be once the playoffs start, are they going to, is, is there, the way they play and is their firepower offensively going to be able to translate? And I think that that is going to be the the interesting thing to watch with the Magic as the years go forward is what type of you know development that you, you need from your own players and you know what else do you need to you know improve till you're at least an average offensive team. 
Um, because I, I think that it's really hard. It's really, really hard to, to win be going all out on offense, right? You, the, yeah, just the, right. the number of players that can carry you not only through the regular season, but be successful in the playoffs. It's just, there's just a few of those guys. So to have a group of players like the magic do right now, that can be an elite defensive team. Um, you know, it, it gives you a little bit of, it gives you a little bit of leeway and saying like, look, we just need to add some peripheral pieces here and we don't need to be the number one offensive team. We just need, let's get on a 15, 16. And, and then you're talking about, you know, then you're talking about hosting home floor playoff games. Um, so that, that to me is like the really impressive thing about that team. And then, you know, I was just looking at this the other night, kind of prepared to come on. I was looking at kind of Paolo's first couple of years. Wait a, wait a minute. You said you prepared to come on here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not watching. The guy's always ready. At least somebody prepared to come on here. I, I yeah. Better. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, but I was looking at you know the question in my mind really is is can you know, can Paolo be and this is a little bit of a cheap comparison because they're both like Duke guys but can he be can he be Jason Tatum can he be like the number one guy that's eventually moving into like MVP and if you look at his you look at you look at the stats um, you know kind of overachieving relative to Tatum did in his first couple of years. Now Tatum had Tatum probably shot the ball better from three and he's sure. he's continued that on with high, high volume. And I think that's not I don't know if that's necessarily what Paul is going, but like there's a chance that he could he could be that for you guys. And that's like the hardest thing to have is like the num a number one who's an all NBA level player oh. on a team. If you don't have that, you're not going to be you're always going to be a fringe team playoff team if you have that number one guy who's an all nba type guy you're you're in the conversation to be a perennial playoff team well can i ask real quick guys i know you guys want to jump in but can i just to expand on that what does that is that one guy that helps this team make that jump is it a couple of you said peripheral pieces is it just a couple of guys do you need that third consistent scoring option what what opens things up for paulo where he can continuously be that kind of guy we could is remarkable what he's doing now without the spacing you know, I, I think it's it's obviously shooting, and so that's you, you know you can get guys that are, you know, maybe one dimensional isn't, isn't what you want, but but are available in free agency or through trade because they have some sort of flaw, but they can really shoot the ball well, and given the right team and given the right other like above average defensive players are like playable players, you know, for for the Magic, I'm kind of curious what happens at the at the point guard position because I think that that's. That's another area where, you know, if you're able to have someone that can have the ball in their hand, you cut down on your turnovers a little bit, all of a sudden, you know, you become a little bit more of an offensive team. And I think that that also puts a guy like Jalen Suggs in a, in a much better position. Just in looking at his his career possession, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, but his role has moved a little bit. I mean, he was never a point guard, but he's right. moved even like a little bit more off the ball. And by all accounts... Yeah. It's it's led to much more much more efficient play for him. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, the drives have been down and and basically you know spotting up, and that's happened with the development of Franz Wagner and yeah. Paolo Bancaro, who are both so good at, at just getting to wherever they want to get and attacking the bucket. What have you seen from Franz? He's got he's got a little Manu Ginobili in him, doesn't he? With that with that Euro step, I mean, he's he, he's a big special player, but he's very unique, is he not? He's he's unique. Number one, be for you know such a young player to be as good as defensively as he was able to be coming in. You know, I think that that that's number one. 
and then just overall skill and skill level. I think that what you're pointing to, Jake, of being able to put it on the floor and having good vision and be able to make a play either you know for yourself or for someone else. Um, that's impressive. But I think that he he is the key to me, or one of the keys, obviously, like being able to do what you guys have done defensively. Um, just to have those big, long, skill two-way type guys. Um, yeah, he's <laughs> that. That was a that was an excellent pick. Uh, you're coming into uh, to the Kia Center on Sunday night. We're going to recognize you as part of the 35th anniversary. I, I, I'm looking back now. You're still in the top ten for us in games played, three pointers made. Talk about your nine years here in Orlando. I mean, that was the majority of your MVP. Did you ever think it would last that long being in Orlando with all the things that, I mean, you saw a ton of different uh, versions of this magic team. Given that I was traded after my first year, I didn't think that I was going to be any place for, for nine years. Uh, so that, yeah, number one, when I think back about that, um, in that era, no one really you never really heard about tanking, right? Tanking wasn't like a concept. It was a much better, it was a much better time, Pat. It was that, yes. If you look at the moves of that team, that was the, that was kind of why I came in at the final right. end of the breakdown of the Shaq, Penny, Nick Anderson era. That was the original tank. But yeah. that was a tank. Right. Like, let's call it what it is. And it was yep. a tank gone wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The, the, no, the funny thing was, was like, they didn't know how, like, they just thought, oh, Gabe, this is, of course, Gabe and the front office thought, well, you know, we're just going to get players. These are cheap contracts, you know, you rookies, and we'll have a bunch of cap space for next summer. And didn't realize how good Ben Wallace was. Didn't realize, like, how, but guess how would you, like, how George sure. John he was going to be, Daryl Armstrong, you know, how, how good of a coach in his first year and having never coached at Doc Rivers was going to be. Just in terms of how he, first of all, like motivated everyone, how creative he was, um, and how he wanted to play. That team went forty-one and forty-one, and so, really? yeah. Of anything that you know, those so those first you know four years, and obviously playing with McGrady and Grant. Um, what I remember about that, obviously playing with you know two of the, the greatest players that ever played. The disappointment a lot of times just with Grant and not him, just not being like just such a good person and good player and not ever being able to be you know healthy in Orlando and then you know I, there was obviously like two or three really rough years in between there but then being with that next special group of players right at the beginning of their career of of Jameer Dwight Hito you know JJ and I I wish I just was able to hang on one more year I would have been able to go to the finals yeah so we would have been playing <laughs> so just one more year go think about that you know what's interesting see to, to me what i'm hearing is you don't have to tank because they got guys in here you went 41 and 41 and then the next year you had tracy mcgrady and grant hill and potentially almost tim duncan as that's all you have to do out. though dante is you'd have to add tracy mcgrady and grant hill <laughs> well that's true oh that's true but did you what you know we hear about the the media's perception right of of putting that heart and hustle team together what was your perception when you came in did you think also 17 wins what would this team was going to look like or was there a certain point in training camp or preseason where you thought man we might have something here uh, honestly Dante I was too young and and probably dumb in terms of like the NBA oh, to, to even have like good expectations yeah. 
because more than who's this who's this amateur guy is that what you said who's amateur Oh, well, well, the, you go back and look at the training camp roster. That's the other thing. They were, like we started with like twenty five guys, you know, Chris Gatling and Arlen Hill, Charles O'Bannon was there. Like I forget what or Chad O'Bannon was there. O'Bannon, yep, yeah, man, rock good. No, but you, when you're, the, I think the reality is, and probably veteran players had other expectations. But you know, I was going into my second year. I wasn't even thinking about what the record was going to be. I was thinking about like, am I going to be able to like get on the floor and carve out a niche for myself and like survive in the NBA. So I, at no sure. point in that year, I, I think uh, until later in the year where we were like in the mix were, was anyone, I mean, I at least wasn't even thinking about like playoffs. Fair enough. Fair enough. You can't tank with a bunch of tryhards. I mean, I, I mean, no. bowl outlaw on a tanking roster. I mean, come on now. That was, that was, uh, that was, that was had a fatal flaw, I think. Probably. Well, not only did you play, you, you played all eighty-two games, Pat. So that's not that's not. You, you, uh, it's remarkable, right? I mean, when, yeah. that, those days are gone. By the way, eighty-two games don't happen anymore. No, <laughs> not, no, no chance. All right. Well, last thing, Pat, you're going to be coming into town, as George said. You're going to be recognized here in Arena. We got a fun. We got a gala coming up. We got a a fun couple of days with you here in town. But from a family side, I know you're a proud papa too, right? You got Henry on. Uh, following in dad's footsteps, right? At your alma mater, let everybody know what happened. That's unbelievable. That's, that's the real story. Yeah. So, so our, our son, Henry, who was born in, in Orlando in 2005, um, both a football and a basketball player growing up, really fell in love with football and had an opportunity, you know, pretty decent opportunities, mid, mid major service academies to, to go and play. And, um, and then also had preferred walk on opportunities at Notre Dame and a couple other power five type schools. And, you know, we talked about it. I think, you know, for him, like being associated with the Notre Dame program and the education that you get from Notre Dame and just being able to be part of that was worth it. Even though, you know, you're stepping into the deep end of the pool. So he's, just finished up his freshman year, walk on tight end at Notre Dame, doing fantastic in school. That's great. Uh, would have uh, we thought about bringing him down, but he's like, I got now we got lifts on Monday, so I, I don't I won't be able to make it back for a morning lift. So I'm like, that's a good excuse. <laughs> that's a good excuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. But it's got to be cool watching. I mean, you get to relive. Yeah, I know you went to the games a lot, and it's got to be yeah. cool for you to be a part of that environment. Oh, it's great. Yeah, no, it really has. And I, and I had always uh, stayed in touch with the school and gone back for a couple of games, but this is, this has created a whole new reason to be even, even more engaged and go back more. And it's a great, great place. All right, Pat. Well, thanks so much. It's always great to catch up with you and good luck the rest of the way. We're going to have a fun weekend, but as you kind of work your way through the NBA and get back with the team, it's going to be fun to watch, keep up the great work on, on television and uh, we'll catch up soon. All right. Great being with you guys. Thanks. Dante'll do it for this edition for you. Don't worry about it. You're all set. <laughs> put put in a good word with yeah, put in a good word with the sideline reporter and, and uh part time play by play guy. Perfect. <laughs> Option D on play by play. That's right. All right, that'll do it for this edition of Magic Pod Squad. We'll see you next time.